It's the Kim Munson Show, analyzing the most important story. Socialization of transportation, education, energy, housing, and water. What it means is, is that government controls it through rules and regulations. The latest in politics and world affairs. Under this guise of bipartisanship and nonpartisanship, it's actually tapped down the truth. Today's current opinions and ideas. On an equal field in the battle of ideas mistruths or misconceptions and it is getting us into a world of hurt is it freedom or is it force let's have a conversation indeed and welcome to the kim munson show let's have a conversation and uh, be sure to check out our website that is kim munson m-o-n-s-o-n.com sign up for our weekly newsletter there and you can email me at kim at kim munson.com as well and thank you to all of you who support us we're an independent voice we search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you shouldn't have to force people to do it. And remember, my friends, it's never compassionate to take other people's stuff, whether or not it's their rights, property, freedom, livelihood, opportunity, or their lives via force. And a force could be a weapon policy, unpredictable and excessive taxation, fear, coercion, government-induced inflation, the World Economic Forum, Davos Globalist Elite's agenda, or those 87,000 IRS agents authorized in the Democrats' Economy Reduction Act. So I so appreciate each and every one of you joining us. You're each treasured, valued, you have purpose today. Strive for excellence, take care of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your body. And I get to work with an amazing team, and that is producer Steve, Zach, Patty, Keith, Charlie, Jen, Echo, and all the people here at Crawford Broadcasting. Happy Monday to you, producer Steve. Well, not just any Monday, but uh, the Monday of the week of Thanksgiving. And we are doing something very special. And typically on uh, around the holidays, the team works like crazy so that we can take some time off. But we, we want to have fresh new content for you. And so hence, we're pre-recording these shows. And, uh, and uh, so I want to jump into this because we've got a really special show planned for you uh, today. Uh, in this first hour, in studio with me is Juliana Day. She is the Executive Director of Life Decisions. Juliana, it's great to have you here. Thank you, Kim. It's always a pleasure for me to be in your show. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. I, I have um, nicknamed you the Patriot from Peru. <laughs> 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 because you're doing such amazing work. Thank you. It's, uh, it's just so wonderful to be able to um, just to be an activist and uh, just uh, communicate with our communities. Uh, I love that and the feedback that I get constantly every day when uh, I raise uh, awareness about critical issues that are affecting our, our communities. It's just, uh, it's just amazing. Well, you've been really tireless in this. And uh, as executive director of uh, Life Decisions, I mean, this has been a journey for you to get to this point. Tell us just a little bit about Life Decisions. Um, well, some of the people know me because I was a sponsor of Proposition 115. And, and th that was the late term abortion Yes, question, and that made it to the, to the ballot. And so that was an uh, initiative that we started and uh, with the idea to put restrictions to abortion after 22 weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, fortunately, we gathered all the signatures and made it to the ballot. So, but uh, unfortunately, it failed. But, uh, for Did a lot of money come in to try to defeat that? Oh, absolutely. For what I understand, it was about $11 million that Planned Parenthood spent to defeat the proposition. 
Wow. Yeah. So there were two things that I learned from Proposition 115 and campaigning all over the state. It was that a lot of people in the state have no idea about the different resources that we have, and it's abundance of resources. And number two, that people lack of information. A lot of the people, when we were discussing the issue of abortion, didn't have any idea that in this state you can have an abortion until the moment of birth. People, when you tell people that, they're like, no, no, yeah. no, no way. Yeah, they they didn't know. So in that uh, in that way, uh, I would say that the fact that we were able to raise awareness about what was happening in the state, it was a very successful campaign. So having that in mind, and one more thing is that the fact that I learned that we have to come together. The pro-life movement cannot be fragmented. So I put all that together, and that's when Life Decisions was born. Okay. So the mission of Life Decisions is mainly a three-prone approach. Number one is um, we need to provide information to the public. So that's why uh, ev- we, uh, I have a wonderful team of doctors. I have two doctors in my team, Dr. Tom Perel and Dr. Catherine Wheeler. And you brought them with you. Yes, We're I brought get them, to them here in yes. just a minute. <laughs> so I'm very excited about that because we covered the entire state. We, we've been to Grand Junction, we've been to Lamar, we've been to Trinidad, Denver, Boulder, everywhere. We just can't, yesterday uh, we went to the uh, UNC, to the university, and we do presentations and we discuss the reality of Good abortion. And what we do it, our approach is a scientific approach. Whether you are pro-life, pro-choice, in the middle, it doesn't matter. Because this is an issue that cuts across political parties, mm-hmm. too. So uh, having the doctors is just an, a wealth of information that we provide mm-hmm. to, uh, to the people. In, we go into the communities and uh, we go everywhere. So that is very important and uh, because, like I was mentioning, people have no idea what is happening in the state. So and we just want to make a note that uh, this last legislative session, there was legislation that was passed here in Colorado that makes us one of the most radical places on the planet regarding abortion. Uh, a baby can be aborted up until the moment they're in the birth contract. Um, birth canal here in Colorado now, right? Yeah, the Reproductive Health Equity Act is the most radical piece of legislation that we have not just uh, in the state of Colorado, in the nation, but in the entire world. I want uh, the listeners to have a good understanding and perhaps we can discuss a little bit about the law that it already passed and it and, was... And Paula signed it. Yes. Actually, I was with Dr. Tom Perel outside of the governor's mansion in the day that he was signing the bill. Mm-hmm. So it was just, uh, uh, it broke my heart just mm-hmm. to see that how um, um, this law is so right unrestricted abortion and not only that um, the abortion industry already pledged that they are going to try to pass an amendment to the Constitution in 2024. So that's why there's a sense of urgency. To the Colorado Constitution? Yeah, to the Colorado Constitution. That's why your work is so important. Go ahead and tell me the other two things that are the focus of life decisions, and then we'll get over here to, you can introduce uh, the doctors. Yes, so that's number one, the information. Great. and we're trying to be very accurate about all the information that we provide about the, um, the reality of abortion. We go through the fetal development. We go through the abortion procedure, the different alternatives that a woman has, and a little bit about what the law is in the state. Okay. Number two, what is important is 
coming together. That's why the li- life decisions. Uniting. Huh? Yes. That, uh, life decisions, we partner. We partner with a lot of organizations, groups that are focused on you know, the preservation of life and uh, the issue of abortion and also things that are related to that. And that is the public schools, what is happening, because the reality is that uh, a lot of this, no, the, the abortion issue starts in public schools with a hypersexualization of the kids in the I schools. Know. And uh, right now they are even opening the wellness clinics, wellness centers. School, that school-based health clinics. What could go wrong with that? <laughs> yeah, it sounds very <laughs> innocent. And, and um, the way they, they are definitely not. And uh, so that's number two. And number three, what Life Decisions uh, has done is that something that is critical because sometimes when you talk to women that is facing an unwanted or um, and challenge or challenge pregnancy mm-hmm. what happens is that um, they feel that the only option that they have is Planned Parenthood and having an abortion mm-hmm. and that's not true so for me it was very important to provide resources so I say, how can I put uh, or make available all that information to the public? So once you are facing a challenging pregnancy, you know that uh, uh, there are so many uh, alternatives to that. So we came up with an idea of um, create uh, an app, an Insta Life Decisions resource app. So you're going to find that it's just an incredible tool. Uh, hundreds of people already are down- downloaded the app, and you're going to find more than 20 different categories. So if you, um, if you need shelters, you need uh, housing, you need uh, um, 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 information about adoption agencies and uh, um, you are a victim of sex trafficking, sexual uh, abuse, domestic violence, and that uh, you need um, financial uh, resources for transportation, mm-hmm. for rent, just name it, parenting mm-hmm. classes. All this stuff is, gonna, is included in the app. We are already partnering with uh, organizations like uh, Pregnancy Center Alternatives. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a 24-7 um, and just phone calls that a, a woman can make in case that is facing a pregnancy, mm-hmm. a crisis. So it's just all this stuff is con- is included in the app. No matter what the problem a woman is facing, or a man too, because we have to it reach affects, and it affects absolutely a, men as well. So yeah. but that's really great. So people can just download it on their phone. Yes, it's the Life Decisions Resource app, and okay, you you can have it there. And uh, you please share it with a lot of people. We are right now trying to improve the user experience, but eventually this is a tool that is not going to stay just in the state of Colorado. We want to make it a national tool. Good for you. Now, we have just a few minutes left in this particular segment, and you have brought along with you two, I think, very important people. So, uh, Catherine Wheeler, it is great to have you here. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And you're a doc. I am. I'm an OBGYN physician. Okay. And uh, how did you and Juliana get connected? Well, I moved to Colorado just before Proposition 115. Okay. And uh, I actually performed abortions early in my career. Okay. I'm going to ask you more about that, okay? Yes, please do. And um, I had never planned to talk about it, but I hadn't realized that abortions are done anywhere in the United States up to the due date. And I just couldn't be silent anymore. 
And, you know, I think, Catherine, at this point, I, I think I'll do our quote for today, and that is Thomas Jefferson. In the Declaration of Independence, he said that uh, we are all created equal because we're created, well, in the image of God. Uh, but that we have these rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. So life is foundational to the American idea. And there's been, I think, this, this lie about abortion. I think many of us didn't realize what a lie it was. And I think many of us, you know, are on different journeys, different paths. But uh, it sounds to me like you came to a re- realization like that. Absolutely. And I can go into that at some point if you want to. I think there's such a narrative that it's only a woman's choice without thinking about the child. Um, I certainly was in the era of women's rights. And yes, women do need control over their bodies. uh, But a baby is separate from their bodies. Exactly. And if we don't talk about the baby as a human being that deserves life and shouldn't be uh, torn apart, We'll talk about that, and, and we want to let people know if you have young children, and Catherine, you said probably younger than seventh grade, you may want to uh, not listen to the show right now and listen to the podcast when we, we have that, because uh, we do need to understand, have an honest conversation about that. So. Yes, thank you. Catherine Wheeler, it's great to have you here. Thank you. And Tom Perell, I am so excited to meet you. You're a doc as well, so welcome to the show. Thank you. I, I'm glad to be here. And you are uh, with Democrats for Life. And when you told me that, it, I, I stopped in my tracks just a little bit because it seems the Democrat Party, one of the issues has been abortion. So what a journey you've been on. Yeah, I've, I've been a lifelong Democrat. And um, because a lot of my views on immigration, the environment, and, and other areas align better with Democratic Party than the Republican Party. But... Um, the abortion issue, which back in the 70s initially was was something that, that there was bipartisan opposition to abortion, uh, is, is since, as you pointed out, mm-hmm. waned dramatically, and now the uh, leaders of the Democratic Party are, are, are really pro-abortion, not even pro-choice. Mm-hmm. But uh, I found a community of, uh, it turns out that, you know, nationally about a third of Democrats are pro-life. Um, and really? Yeah, in Colorado, it's it's closer to twenty percent, which, but it's still a significant it is st- significant amount of people. And there's some states like Louisiana that are led by a pro-life Democrat governor, John Bell Edwards. Um, and there's other prominent, rising, particularly Latino and Black Democrats that are speaking out against abortion. And okay. I think for the pro-life movement to succeed, it has to be bipartisan. And so my goal is to transform the party within itself and wow. to. Uh, search out Democrats who are pro-life to to compete in the political marketplace. Oh, it's great to have you here. So we're going to go to break. In studio with me is Juliana Day, uh, Dr. Catherine Wheeler, Dr. Tom Perell. Before we do that, though, the show comes to you because of all your support and then some great sponsors. And a great sponsor of the show is Hooters Restaurants. They have five locations. That's Loveland, Aurora, Westminster, Lone Tree, and Colorado Springs. And I got to know them when I was on city council. It's a really interesting story about freedom and free markets and capitalism. You can find that at my website. They have all kinds of lunch and happy hour specials Monday through Friday. Check that out. We're going to go to break. We will be right back with Juliana Day, Catherine Wheeler, and Tom Perell. Stay tuned. Three Points Financial is a fiduciary financial planning company focused on helping individuals and families. Mary Alpers and Steve Cruz at Three Points Financial specialize in investment strategies, tax planning and preparation, and retirement planning with no product sales or commissions. 
Tax laws have changed and will continue to change. Inflation is real. Three Points Financial helps you maneuver through these changes to achieve your financial success. For clarity and a solid, relevant financial and investment plan while working with a company that puts your interests at the forefront, schedule a no-obligation initial consultation at threepointsfinancial.com. That's threepointsfinancial.com. And welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter there, and you can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. And thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice. We search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. Something's a good idea. You shouldn't have to force people to do it. And also, all of these great sponsors that I have, you can find them on my website. I know all of them personally. I highly recommend each and every one of them. And I'm grateful to them as well for being uh, partners of the show. In studio with me is Juliana Day. She is the executive director with Life Decisions. And then Drs. Catherine Wheeler and Drs. Tom Perel are both in studio as well. Uh, Juliana Day, let's, let's start with Catherine. Uh, Dr. Wheeler, how did you get connected? Well, I was campaigning for Prop 115 when um, people were always sending me emails. And I got an email from Catherine telling me a little bit about her story. And uh, she wanted to be part of that. She was feeling in her heart that she had a lot of um, to contribute to the campaign. So that's when I contacted her back and uh, we we started from that point. And I, I think the first... Um, um, meeting. I think it was when uh, I invited you to even one of the fundraisers to be one of the speakers mm-hmm. and uh, to tell your story to the uh, to the audience. And uh, I think that's um, is amazing because for me it's been an incredible, um, an emotional journey, and then um, just to be with the community mm-hmm. and uh, to feel the pain of so many women that suffer because of this. And, uh, and that's when I was mentioning the part of life decisions is also to uh, come together. And uh, that's what I invited Dr. Tom Perel that is part of Democrats for Life because this is an issue that cuts across any political parties, uh, ethnicities, races, religion. Is, pain, yeah. pain in the heart. Oh, absolutely. Whether or not it's a man or woman oh. is... Uh, is cuts across all party lines. Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, so that was my journey with Catherine, and uh, I invited her, uh, her and when I you know, started Life Decisions to be part of the team. So awesome. I want your listeners to um, to make sure that uh, they understand how important it is to provide informa- information to the communities. So if you want to reach out to us and uh, contact me so we can do these presentations, and it's just so critical right, you're to, going to do that. Yeah, you're going yeah. all over the state. So, again, mm-hmm. at lifedecisions.org, is that no, right? No, lifedecisions.me, uh, my cell phone number is 720-899-0897. And, uh, yeah, we'll go everywhere, small groups, big groups, and uh, public libraries, uh, homes, just name it. But uh, reach out to us, please. And it's so, so important. So, lifedecisions.me. Yes. Okay, got it. Dr. Catherine Wheeler, uh, tell me about your journey. You mentioned... Uh, feminism. I, I mean, I remember that. I remember that that the uh, conversation was that uh, the fetus is just tissue. And initially, I kind of thought I bought into that. That's not true, is it? It is not true. Um, and, and for me, one of the interesting things, looking back, when you realize what you've done, you have to figure out how in the world you ever could have done something so awful. 
And just going back to training, how we were trained as OB-GYNs that there are two patients, you always try to save both lives and health. If it's a life-threatening situation, you save the mother's health as a preference. And um, when we talked about abortion, this would have been in the mid-1980s at the University of Utah. This was a genetic center. And they did offer abortions for people with what would be considered severe genetic anomalies and severe genetic syndromes. Those were the only abortions that were done at the university. And it was presented to us as I think back, we never talked about the baby. This is the one time we never talked about the baby. There was no ethical discussion. It was at the time, uh, and this is getting harder, I believe, for physicians, but at the time you could opt in or opt out. But it was presented as these are difficult decisions that sometimes women have to make. And we like women. We're here to help them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so you just do the hard thing. Okay. I loved women. I wanted to help women. So I'm like, of course I'll help women. So initially you did perform abortions. Initially I did. And um, you can ask a hard question. Again, parents probably might not want to have your little ones hear this. Uh, I don't think people understand what the procedure is exactly. There, so explain that a little bit. So there are different procedures, and it depends. It it's all depends on how far along the pregnancy is and how big the baby is, which, of course, the bigger the baby, the more difficult it is to get it out of the uterus. Okay. So in the first trimester, it would be uh, the surgical one would be called a dilation and curatage, okay. similar to the one that we do for gynecology. It's, it's structured a little bit differently. Because you had the uterus is softer, it's more easy to be damaged or to actually push instruments through the uterus when the uterus is pregnant. So it's a modified procedure. Okay. Uh, so that is done until about 14 weeks. Basically, the woman would um, be either sedated or given pain meds, and you would go through the vagina with an instrument into the cervix, which is basically the bottom part of the uterus that stays tightly closed to keep the pregnancy in, the baby in. Mm-hmm. And you use little tiny metal rods that gradually get bigger to make the cervix open up and use a suction. So it looks like a straw, a little bit bigger than a straw, and you apply it to suction, a suction cannula, which is about 10 to 20 times stronger than your household vacuum, and it literally pulls the baby apart as it sucks it out. Uh, And then you remove the placenta, Mm -hmm. also with the suction and with a little metal loop. The second trimester, once you're over about 12 to 14 weeks, the baby's bones are now hardened. And so it won't come apart in the suction cannula, and it's bigger. So you do a similar procedure called a dilation and evacuation. These are the ones that I was trained to do. So you also, the baby, uh, the woman is going to be sedated. Um, for this procedure for sure and you're going to dilate the cervix more you have a bigger suction cannula but you actually have to use a grasper called a sofer ovum forcep and it has little teeth in it that you literally with the baby alive you grab whatever you can get hold of so arms legs and you pull and they come apart uh, the hardest thing to get out is the head you literally have to grasp it and crush it to make it smaller to come out and then you use the suction instrument and, again, that le- metal loop to get the placenta out. So that's in the second trimester up until about 22 weeks. It was born at 22 weeks. You would try to save its life. You'd offer that. 
And, and that happens now with modern medicine. Down to 22 weeks. Yes. Yes. Okay. And there's even been survivors in the 21-week range. But at that point, you know, they don't want to have a live baby. And half okay. of the time, by You're talking about third, th- third trimester. 22 weeks in, up until delivery. Okay. So at that point, you're basically going to use medication to get the cervix to open for most people. But they don't want to have a live baby. Half of the time, the baby would be born alive if you just induce labor. So what they do is they kill the baby with medication. And they most of the time, in modern times, they would use a drug called digoxin. It's a heart medication. But they would use it in a poisonous dose. And you can inject that either into the baby's heart, which is difficult to do, and still takes hours to kill the baby. So it's not immediate like they tell you. Um, or more commonly, they would inject it into the fluid around the baby, like an amniocentesis, but they're actually injecting a drug in poisonous levels. And that can take up to 24 hours to kill the baby. Um, and about 5% of the time, it won't. And so they'll ultrasound after 24 hours, see if the baby's dead. If not, they repeat the procedure. And I think the important thing for people to know is, again, it's not instant. The babies are suffering, and the biggest thing they suffer with is abdominal pain, um, horrible abdominal pain, um, and delirium. Like for us adults, we would say that's hallucinations. And so the uh, Dr. Hearn in Boulder, the abortionist, he will tell them that just to expect severe kicking for hours. Oh, gosh. Which to me, the first time oh I heard gosh. that, that's what I heard from my patients who would have what's called a cord accident where the cord, the umbilical cord was tight around the baby's neck and they would die in utero. And they would tell me about this horrible kicking and then no movement. And, and they just, when you realize the baby was suffering. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's the hardest thing because when you look at the websites, they say, does second tri- does, do late-term abortions hurt? Does this procedure going to hurt? And they address the woman. And they say, no, you'll feel the needle go through your abdomen, but they'll numb it first. Mm-hmm. But nobody says this is what the baby is experiencing. Boy, uh, Dr. Wheeler, uh, what, what was your revelation? When did this mm. all change? Yeah, you know, I, I do want to address one thing. You know, in order to do an abortion, you have to, there are two things that have to happen, and for women to choose it. You have to assume that the baby does not have any value, that it's not a human being, or completely disregard it. And we, that's what we see with it's a clump of cells, it's pregnancy tissue, it's nothing, it doesn't have a heartbeat. Yes, it does. Between five and six weeks, that's actually a heart that's yeah. beating. And the second thing is you can't let people know what happens in the procedure. Okay. Once you know, like you wouldn't do this no. to an animal. No. <laughs> you wouldn't do this to anything else. I mean, this is horrible. This is like concentration camps and the Nuremberg doctors, right. you know. Um, so I think those are the two things that people need to know. Now, from the doctor's side, you know, you say, well, how did you sit there and do that? Under the guise of you're helping women and the, the hard, hard things that we sometimes do as doctors where you just go, it's just a hard thing I have to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, people are pain. You know, you think about trauma, you think about labor and how much pain and drama is going on. And you just do what has to be mm-hmm. done. And that's the category I put it in. Mm-hmm. But I walked in to do an abortion one very typical day for me. 
I didn't do very many abortions. That was not my primary thing. But um, I did walk in to do an abortion, sat down, started the procedure. And all I can tell you, it's hard to describe, uh, is that it was like the room went dark. And it was like there was a pure evil in the room. It was absolutely terrifying. And I was the only person aware of it. Everybody else was just going on as normal. But I was just instantly aware of the horrible horrible evil and I all I knew is I'd started uh, I had to finish and that I would never do another one and then I I didn't even let myself think about it for at least 15 years Um, this had to be a journey for you Uh, and Juliana and I've talked about this regarding the abortion industry there's no regard for the woman the heart after or or the fathers as well and the thing that we, and Juliana talks about this all the time, that, that instead of judgment, because many of these women, I think they're judging themselves, or probably physicians are judging themselves. And I think that that's been politicized to say, oh, those people are judging you, so vote this way. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I think it's so important that none of us are perfect. We all have things that we need to be forgiven of. And I've got to think that there has been a journey for you to get to a point of forgiveness for those actions. Yes, Dr. Wheeler? It has, and it's been a very long process for me. Again, because one of the things when you've done something so awful is you don't let yourself think about it. And the world says you should be, well, now, I mean, we've really transgressed to from, you know, it's just a hard decision to, it's not a hard decision. It's actually a good for women well, I'm telling you, sitting in my chair as an OB-GYN, I never heard a woman shout her abortion. They were all grieving. They were all saying, who ever said, I'm so happy about my abortion. They were crying in my office. And to me, that disconnect, because the abortion industry, and unfortunately, the American College of OB-GYN and other medical organizations, you know, they're all saying, well, this is actually a good thing. It keeps the women from recognizing their grief. And that's one of my steps was finally grieving two babies I lost to miscarriage and realizing, and I saw an article in New York Times that talked about how harmful it is for women who've lost babies to not be able to grieve and nobody wants to talk about it. And I held miscarriages and abortions and I looked at them both and said, but they're the same babies. So what are we doing to women to say this is actually a good thing for you to make that choice and not let you grieve it? Oh, that's that's powerful, Dr. Uh, Catherine Wheeler. Let's go to break. Uh, um, Just powerful. So thank you. So let's go to break. Uh, Juliana Day is in studio. She is the executive director of Life Decisions, Dr. Catherine Wheeler. And when we come back, we'll talk with Dr. Tom Perel. Uh, He is with Democrats for Life and so interested to hear his story as well. So stay tuned. The Metro home ownership real estate market is very tight right now. That's why Kim Munson recommends you have seasoned REMAX realtor Karen Levine on your side of the table. Karen Levine will help you navigate through the many details of your home buying experience so that you can successfully pursue your American dream. Because Karen Levine cares about property rights for each individual, she volunteers hundreds of hours to represent home ownership opportunities at the local, county, 
county, state, and national levels. If you are considering buying or selling your home, call Karen Levine today at 303-877-7516. Again, that's 303-877-7516. You'd like to get in touch with one of the sponsors of The Kim Munson Show, but you can't remember their phone contact or website information. Find a full list of advertising partners on Kim's website, KimMunson.com. That's Kim, M-O-N-S-O-N, dot com. All of Kim's sponsors are an inclusive partnership with Kim and are not affiliated with or in partnership with KLZ or Crawford Broadcasting. If you would like to support the work of the Kim Munson Show and grow your business, contact Kim at her website, KimMunson.com. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N, dot com. Welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter there. You can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. We search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you shouldn't have to force people to do it. In studio with me is the executive director of Life Decisions, Juliana Day, as well as we were just talking with Dr. Catherine Wheeler. And I want to ask Dr. Tom Perell some questions. He is with Democrats for Life. Dr. Perell, welcome to the show. Thank you. When we hear the platform of the current Democrat Party, abortion seems to be one of the the things that they focus on significantly. So hearing Democrats for Life, and and then in the first segment, the statistics that uh, at least 20% of Democrats uh, are pro-life. I did not know that, Dr. Perell, and that's here in Colorado. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize um, that there are many people out there who subscribe to a consistent life ethic that believe that you know every human being from the moment of fertilization to their natural death has inherent value and dignity. And um, a lot of us in the consistent life ethic align with Democratic Party on many of those views, capital punishment, um, uh, you know, the... Re- the redemption of, of criminals and, you know, the ability to um, see the value in people who even have made tragic mistakes. And so our, our, our politics align with the Democratic Party in many things, but uh, and, and initially mine did even with, with the abortion issue because there were many pro-life Democrats that were prominent in the leadership in the 1970s and 80s. But gradually they've uh, faded away or were intimidated into, into espousing a different position, and I refuse to go that route, and uh, I, I've decided that um, I could be a more effective proponent of the consistent life ethic within the Democratic Party by trying to, to find Democratic leaders to run for office that are, are pro-life and that respect every human being uh, and, 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 and their value. And so um, I, I'm working to try to change the minds of, of the party leadership. I'm trying to find Democrats to speak out and not be intimidated by their party leaders. And I, I'm trying to collaborate with Republican pro-life and independent pro-life people so that we can make a movement that actually is impactful and changes the culture. Boy, that's good for you. And coming together, uniting around this issue is important. Now, you're a doc. What kind of uh, medical practice? Uh, I'm an internal medicine specialist. I actually did hospital medicine for the last 20 years of my practice. Um, and uh, that was one of the formative uh, things in my pro-life journey is, is, was medical school. 
at Northwestern University in Chicago, um, I had two experiences that sort of uh, highlighted for me the importance of, of speaking out and and being a proponent for life. Uh, uh, we I participated in a a um, meeting where an abortionist was describing abortion. It was a, it was a discussion of abortion, and um, as part of the meeting, the, the abortionist decided that it would be back in this this time it, it was conceivable you could do this. I don't think anybody would do it today, but. They, uh, he, he passed around a bucket with a second trimester aborted baby in it that he had just aborted across the street from the, the, the conference hall we were at. And, you know, I looked at this, this white bucket and saw this, this dead baby and said, how on earth have we come as a culture to accept this as a, as a uh, solution to a problem pregnancy? So this was second trimester. And... <laughs> First of all, baby in a bucket. I mean, how cruel is that? But so, how big was the baby? You know, it's it, it's about the size of a you know it was about the size of your hand, adult hand. And uh, was it fully formed? Yeah, it was formed, and it wasn't torn apart because back this was back in the era when they did saline abortions and and uh, they induced labor and they induced abortion in a different manner, but. The, the reality of seeing a dead baby and, and thinking this was a, a good outcome and this was the way we should approach, you know, women who, who are in a crisis, it just, it, it just, it, it shook my foundation. I mean, I was already pro-life, but this reinforced the sure. notion that, okay. that, you know, I had to speak out. And, and the other part of it was I did my OBGYN rotation at a Catholic hospital, actually, and, um, uh, you know, I helped deliver babies there and, and saw the... The, you know how, how beautiful and impactful and miraculous that was but one of the OBGYN attendings that I had um, for some reason I, I realized that she drove a Rolls Royce which you know back in those days that was the, the excellent you know the absolute uh, uh, pinnacle of a car <laughs> pinnacle of a car and of luxury and of, of you know ostentatious wealth and I asked the residents, so how, you know, what, uh, you know, where is she getting that kind of money? She, she drives a Rolls Royce. And they said, she has an abortion clinic. Um, and so, you know, outside her practice at this hospital, she ran an uh, independent abortion clinic. And obviously, it, it struck home how the other part of the, the reality of abortion, that it's really a, a, a uh, industry that's profitable. And, and for those practitioners, it can be source of uh, great wealth and um, to me that's the other part of the tragedy that people actually uh, derive benefit financial benefit from the suffering of these uh, pre-born babies and, the, and their mothers mm-hmm. so you have been pro-life for a, a while like forever huh your forever for your yes. life okay uh, I'm kind of speechless as I'm thinking about this in medical school and how this could desensitize, so people wouldn't be sensitive to to that. So uh, was the reaction by others in the classroom? You know, I I don't know what other people, we didn't, it wasn't a hugely well-attended meeting, but all I remember is that, you know, is passing the bucket and seeing this baby. That's all I can remember. Everything else is sort of blank. I'm sure. Out. I'm sure you probably weren't paying attention to, to anyone else. So uh, this is quite a journey, Dr. Tom Perell, and you're working with Juliana Day and also Dr. Catherine Wheeler, uh, getting information out, trying to bring people together. Um, let's talk a little bit about 
Roe v. Wade. This was a, a big decision by the Supreme Court. I think it's the right decision. I think that that's, that decision should be pushed to the states. And then I think we engage in all 50 states to to battle for life, to have these conversations. I think, so I'm I'm positive that this this is a decentralizing of the, of the narrative and the um, and, and the discussion on it. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's certainly important that that um, the Supreme Court recognize that there's no uh, right to abortion to be found in the Constitution. That was always fabricated, and uh, and the premises of Roe v. Wade that you know we didn't know when life begins. You know that kind of rhetoric was was clearly false at the time and even more obviously false at this time mm-hmm. with the advent of you know 4d ultrasounds and, and the ability to actually observe the fetus in row and, and see their their humanity so I, I think it's important that that's not recognized in the constitution i'd actually at some point wish that the that the supreme court recognized that that uh, persons as defined in the constitution include the pre-born but mm-hmm. that's a, that's another that's for another day and certainly uh, having it to deliberate at the state level is, is better, but certainly it hasn't helped us in Colorado. And so um, I, I'm happy for the states that are able to uh, change their laws and, and address the needs of, of women and their families uh, and provide more pregnancy support and, and help to these individuals rather than to, to provide the only solution to, to their, their problem is, mm-hmm. is, is an abortion. In Colorado, though, uh, you know, Juliana. Catherine and I hope to change the hearts and minds by talking about abortion, reality of abortion, and uh, and talk about this a little bit about the scientific literature, and uh, and trying to debunk some of the propaganda that is being you know promulgated from the other side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did you see the movie about Abby Johnson? With um, uh, she'd been with Planned Parenthood for quite some time, and uh, and she had not. I mean, she had been very successful with Planned Parenthood, but had not really been, and she was like an executive director of one of their very um, successful clinics. And until she saw, went in and helped with an abortion, and they saw with the, the suction, the baby trying to get away. Uh, and I've just thought about that a lot. Here is the most vulnerable, trying to preserve their life. And when she saw that, it changed her immediately. What's your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think the the way that the uh, pro-abortion side succeeds is by two things. One, one by creating fear, the fear that if you don't have an abortion, you're, you're not going to finish your education, you're not going to have a career. Um, if you don't have an abortion, you're going to have a, you might have a, a baby with a disability, and they will suffer, and you will suffer. I mean, it's all about fear. The other the other key part though is, the, is that they demonize, and we've already talked about this. They demonize the developing human. They know that if if uh, Americans recognized the true humanity of that embryo and fetus, that they would be disinclined to to seek abortion as as the as the solution. Mm-hmm. They'd, they'd look for other uh, support for women who are pregnant in, in, a, in unplanned fashion. And so, what uh, Eddie Johnson experienced was that sudden recognition of the humanity of, ah. of what she was, what was being killed, and and, and uh, that's what. Uh, you know, in our educational efforts, that's what we we talk about the embryo and the embryology, and, and talk about the fact that in utero, um, as early as 12 weeks, the, you know, the fetus can feel pain. By 19 weeks, they could hear their mother's voice. They recognize their mother's voice. They could actually, they've been demonstrated by ultrasound to be able to um, uh, mimic 
the recitation of a nursery rhyme that the mother is saying by opening and closing their mouth in the same rhythm. I mean, it's been the, the ability to understand what's going on in the mind of mm-hmm. the developing human has been tremendous, and it's it, it's helped us help people understand the humanity of these people. Even even the fact that uh, a fetus can demonstrate social behavior in utero is, is remarkable. They've done th- twin studies where they've shown that when you have in utero twins, they don't randomly just bump into each other and you know bump into the uterine wall and push and, and push each other and shove each other. That they've demonstrated that they have purposeful touching of their partner in utero, Aww. which is that it demonstrates the in early social interaction that 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 can be accomplished you know in in, in the uh, uh, sec- late second and third trimester of pregnancy. And so those are the kinds of things that we need people to know. This is not just a cluster of cells or a glob of tissue or pregnancy tissue this is a is a truly distinct wonderful human being well and when we think about since roe v wade now colorado has been radical on this abortion question for years because we were one of the first states that approved abortion in 1967 which is hard to believe and uh, and up until that time in america abortion was pretty much illegal from i was doing some research on on that and so this this is coming out of the the 60s and the 70s and uh, just a real upheaval uh in america but it's it's unbelievable that we live in this beautiful state but yet it is so radical regarding um abortion and uh, we're right up there with china and north korea and i'm not proud of that dr tom perell yeah i mean i've re- i've tried to research the laws uh, pertaining to abortion in china and north korea and as best i can tell they don't would never contemplate an abortion uh in 32 week pregnancy in the third trimester oh, really for a healthy woman with a healthy fetus i mean this is beyond what even authoritarian you know demonic regimens do across the, the world. This is, this is worse than that. And, and, the, and the reason why it exists is because Coloradoans are under the misperception that the only late abortions that are occurring are for these very tragic situations where there's a, you know, a fatal fetal anomaly or the mother's life is at risk. And, mm-hmm. and that's just not true. Uh, the majority of late abortions, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 to 80% of late abortions are, are being performed on perfectly healthy women with perfectly healthy fetuses. And if, you know, if they realize that, they would be, I think, more horrified than they are what's happening in our state. That's why the work that the three of you are doing is so important. Uh, so we're going to go to break here in just a minute. Any final thoughts on before we go to break, Dr. Tom Perel? No, I, I just hope that, that you know, the conversation today gives people the courage to start discussing this with their friends and neighbors because if we, if we remain silent and and just are horrified in our silence and don't uh, make an effort to reach out to our community and to uh, also have it inform the way we vote, um, then we're, we're not going to ever change the culture. Okay, well, thank you, Dr. Tom Perel. So we're going to go to break. In studio with me is Dr. Tom Perel, Dr. Catherine Wheeler, and Juliana Day. Uh, when we come back, we'll continue the conversation Stay tuned. But before we do that, I do want to mention the USMC Memorial Foundation. They are raising money for the Marine Memorial out at 6th and Colfax. It's a charity that I care deeply about because it's important that we know the stories of those who have risked their lives, given their lives, so that we can live in freedom and protect life.
life. That's one of the things we're supposed to do. And uh, so if you want to help them, uh, you can go to USMC Memorial Foundation for more information. It's uh, holiday season, Christmas season, and it is a great gift to uh, buy a brick for um, their walkways. You'll get a great certificate, uh, and you can honor your loved one's military service. That's at USMCMemorialFoundation.org, and we'll be right back. Every family needs a healthcare team that has your child's best interest as the priority, and Roots Medical is proud to offer exactly that. At Roots Medical, we strive to empower and educate both parent and child about the importance of gut health, how to implement healthy changes in the home, and of course, all of the benefits that come with a fully optimized immune system. Same day and sickness appointments are available and easy to schedule. For more information, visit rootsmedical.net. That's R O O T S medical.net. Roots Medical, getting to the root of your healthcare concerns. Inflation is rocking our boats, especially for individuals on fixed incomes. If you are 62 years or older, mortgage specialist with Polygon Financial Group, Lauren Levy, can help you navigate this inflation squeeze with a reverse mortgage. Additionally, if you are considering buying a new home, refinancing your existing home, or consolidating high interest debt, it's not too late to lock in an interest rate before interest rates increase again. Don't wait. Kim Munson recommends you call Lauren Levy today at 303-880-8881 for a no-cost consultation. That's Lauren Levy at 303-880-8881. The ability to protect and defend yourself is your right. Having the knowledge and skills to protect yourself the correct and safe way is essential. At Franktown Firearms, they will equip you with both the tools and the skills. The team at Franktown wants you to learn how to build your confidence and improve your skills with the help of their trained experts. They will take the time to make sure you choose the right gun for you and teach you the necessary skills to carry it safely and securely. This holiday season, consider giving your loved one a firearm training course at Franktown Firearms. They offer one-on-one training or group classes depending on your comfort level and skill. You will find they are fully stocked with guns and ammunition at or below MSRP. You can be assured that you are providing a gift that will truly keep on giving and let your loved ones exercise their freedoms and rights safely and confidently. Visit klzradio.com slash franktown today to give the gift of freedom. That's klzradio.com slash franktown. Franktown Firearms, where friends are made. And welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter there, and you can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. Thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice. We search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you shouldn't have to force people to do it. Uh, in studio with me is Juliana Day. She's the executive director of Life Decisions. And uh, again, what is that website? lifedecisions.me M-E. and my phone number is 720-899-0897 and how can people get the app what's the name of the app Life Decisions Resource and it's already approved by Google and Apple okay. so they can start downloading it it's so important for people to know that uh, there are so many resources and that they can um, find out and that mainly they are free resources and uh, this is an issue that I encourage the listeners to discuss is about love, it's about compassion, it's about no judgment, and uh, because so many people are suffering. Yes, and they're suffering alone, and we talked about without being able to grieve and feeling like they're being judged, but there's forgiveness, 
mercy, compassion in this. Uh, also in studio with us is Dr. Catherine Wheeler and Dr. Tom Perel. Dr. Wheeler, uh, there seems to be an uptick on medical or um, abor- what, what is it? Uh, medication medication abortions. abortions. So mm-hmm. tell us about that. So medication abortion is a med- two medicines that are approved to take 10 weeks of pregnancy or below. The first drug blocks a, uh, and 70% of the abortions now in Colorado are medication abortions. So this is a very important issue. The first medication blocks progesterone, which is the hormone that maintains the health of the baby. So the baby dies. And then two, uh, one to two days later, the woman would take another medication, which induces contractions of the uterus to expel the baby. Now, there's a couple of important things about this. Women are being told that it's safer than Tylenol or as safe as Tylenol. It's not true. It's actually four times riskier than a surgical first trimester abortion, meaning infection, extremely heavy and prolonged bleeding, uh, the abortion not completing, and the baby surviving. They call that a complication. But between (laughs) about 5 to 8% of women who take this at the appropriate age, under 10 weeks, will have a complication. Tylenol doesn't cause... 5 to 8% of people to need a surgery. <laughs> um, and then if you take it later than that, the risks exponentially go up. So if, as you get further into the second trimester, up to 40% of women will have a serious complication of hemorrhage infection or needing a surgery to complete it, which is very dangerous for people who live uh, remote from sure. uh, a hospital. Another thing is that this is now being done through telemedicine. So the women no longer get an ultrasound to make sure they know how far along they are and to make sure that they don't have an ectopic pregnancy, meaning a pregnancy that has not gotten to the uterus, that it's out usually in a fallopian tube, which ruptures, and the woman then has a high risk of dying. And so uh, originally, they had to have an ultrasound to make sure they were in the right gestational age and that they didn't have an ectopic with a high risk of death. It also doesn't allow them to get a blood test done to make sure they don't have a blood type called Rh negative, which if they have an Rh positive baby and don't get uh, an immunoglobulin, they have a significant chance of having a future baby that they might react about. And half of those future babies, if there's that reaction with the mom's blood type, will have serious brain damage or die after birth, uh, 14% of them will die in the uterus. So this is a huge issue. There is a medication that women can take. It's progesterone. It's a natural progesterone. We use it all the time in early pregnancy. Uh, that if they've only taken the first pill within 72 hours, they can take progesterone, and 64 to 68% of them will have an ongoing healthy baby. I, I've, I've had somebody on about that. That is so exciting. I have to say, we are just getting very short on time. This mm-hmm. has gone so quickly and such, so much great information. So, Dr. Tom Perel, let's go to you, uh, your final thoughts today for the show. And thank you so much for being here. Well, th- again, thanks for having us. Um, you know, I, I just hope that um, this discussion has helped people realize in your audience the humanity of the developing human and, and, and what a tragedy it is that we approach women and tell them the only way that they can be equal is by denying their fertility and 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 uh, seeking to be more like a man not have babies at all through abortion instead we should be advocating for pregnancy support both private and public resources and life decisions helps you connect to those things to help these women and, and give them a, a true uh 
something that will that will be life fulfilling rather and life affirming rather than than contribute to uh, fear, death, and destruction of, of valuable human beings like this. Thank you, Dr. Uh, Tom Perrell with Democrats for Life. And about 30 seconds, uh, Dr. Catherine Wheeler. Uh, thank you. I think my final thought would be that for women who've been involved in any way in abortion, and men too, there is recovery available. I would contact a pro- pregnancy resource center, but you don't have to stay in your grief. There is help available for recovery. And that's a good segue over to you, Juliana Dave. You probably have that in your app. Um, Absolutely. We have um, all the pregnancy centers, and so all the information is just so easy to download. And uh, and even the uh, reversal pill, just one click of a button, and you can get connected with help. If you just took the first pill and you regretted it, you can get help. At the end of the day, what we are trying to do is just to bring hope and healing and uh, a lot of love and compassion. There are so many women suffering, and the abortion industry is just destroying the lives of so many precious just young women. And uh, we, we, we are providing critical information. So uh, I ask everyone, please reach out to us call us or uh, connect through uh, through the internet and uh, yeah. Yeah. so yeah so um, we can do these presentations in any place so and thank you so much you bet and that's lifedecisions.me or the app is life decisions resources Resource. Resource. Okay. Well, thank you, Juliana Day, for being here. Thank you, Dr. Catherine Wheeler, for being here. And thank you, Dr. Tom Perel, for being here. This has just been awesome. Okay. And our quote for the end of the show is from Thomas Jefferson. And he said this. He said, evil triumphs when good men do nothing. And we have uh, some pretty important men and women that are doing some important things here with the three guests that we've had. So my, my friends today, be grateful, read great books, think good thoughts, listen to beautiful music, communicate and listen well, live honestly and authentically, strive for high ideals, and like Superman, stand for truth, justice, and the American way. My friends, you are not alone. God bless you, and God bless America. It's the Kim Munson Show, analyzing the most important story. Socialization of transportation, education, energy, housing, and water. What it means is, is that government controls it through rules and regulations. The latest in politics and world affairs. Under the guise of bipartisanship and nonpartisanship, it's actually tapped down the truth. Today's current opinions and ideas. On an equal field in the battle of ideas mistruths or misconceptions and it is getting us into a world of hurt is it freedom or is it force let's have a conversation Indeed, and welcome to the Kim Munson Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You're each treasured, valued, you have purpose. Today, strive for excellence. Take care of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your body. My friends, we were made for this moment. And thank you to the team. I get a, I have a great team I work with. That's producer Steve, Zach, Patty, Keith, Charlie, Jen, Echo, and all the people here at Crawford Broadcasting. Be sure and check out our website. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter. You'll get first look at our upcoming guests as, our, as well as our most recent essays. And you can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. And thank you to all of you who support us. We are an independent voice. We search for truth and clarity by 
looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you shouldn't have to force people to do it. And uh, for Thanksgiving week, we always like to do special things for you. And we pre-record the, uh, the week so that the, the team can take a little bit of time off. Uh, but we like to have uh, new content. And recently... Uh, I was talking with Randall O'Toole. We did uh, a show regarding James J. Hill, who was um, uh, he, he was with the Great Northern Railway. And Randall O'Toole is a, a, a train guy, and he does a lot of great work at uh, the Anti-Planner. Be sure and check that out. But he said one of his other favorite guys is Henry J. Kaiser. And I said, let's, let's do a show on it. And this seemed like this was perfect. So, Randall O'Toole, welcome to the show. Hello. Glad to be here. So Henry J. Kaiser, you 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 really liked uh, James J. Hill, but you said uh, Henry J. Kaiser was pretty special as well. So I'm not real familiar with him. Where do you want to start? Well, uh, James J. Hill built some railroads, and that was great. He did a lot of good stuff for the country. Uh, in the year 2000, Fortune magazine said, who was the entrepreneur of the 20th century? And they picked Henry Ford. And Henry Ford made a lot of cars. He was a real entrepreneur. But I think they missed a bet. Henry J. Kaiser was really the entrepreneur of the 20th century. Henry Ford was an anti-Semite. He was a terrible business manager who almost ran his country, his company into bankruptcy twice. Uh, and he, he developed moving assembly lines and made cheap cars, and that was great. Henry Kaiser built roads, he built dams, he built houses, he built hotels, he built ships, he built planes, he made cement, he made steel, he made con- uh, aluminum, uh, magnesium, and a variety of other things. Oh, and he also made cars. And in fact, the first year he made cars, he sold more cars than any other startup automobile company in history. So uh, if, if, if you go out on the street, it's almost certain you're going to see a car that's made by one of the companies that he owned. So uh, he was a real entrepreneur. He would just get into businesses, new businesses like crazy, and uh, uh, almost always ended up being, making them a success. Okay. And when did he live? Well, he was born in 1882 in upstate New York. And he was kind of a playboy. He uh, owned a photography studio at Lake Placid, New York, and went out with all the girls that he could. And when he was uh, 24 years old, he fell in love with uh, uh, a girl from downstate New York and decided to uh, marry her. But her father said he would be allowed to marry her only if he moved out west and got himself a real job and earned enough money to buy a house for his new wife. So he moved to Spokane, Washington, and got into the road construction business, and very quickly was able to buy a house, married his uh, girlfriend, Bess, and uh, started building roads all over the West Coast. He caught the attention of a a guy named Warren Bechtel, who, of course, is uh, the founder of the Bechtel Company, which is the largest a private construction company in the world. And Bechtel said to him one day, you know, we're bidding on building a dam in Nevada. Would you like to be a part of it? So Kaiser became one of six companies that successfully bid on uh, uh, construction of Hoover Dam. Later they built Grand Coulee Dam and Bonneville Dam and uh, uh, ended up Kaiser being a very important part of that 
Kaiser was able to get people to work together. So they made him the chairman of the uh, coordinating committee for the six companies because they knew that he would be able to get them to work together instead of uh, fighting all the time. What do you think it was about him that he could get people to work together, Randall? Well, I think he knew what motivated people. Uh, He was also uh, an incredible organizer. Um, After World War II, the uh, military developed what was called a system called Operations Research, uh, where you take complex projects and break them down into little bits and then put them in the right order so that you can do things like build dams or uh, build bridges or design airplanes or whatever uh, in the most efficient way possible. Well, as near as I can tell, Henry J. Kaiser was a human operations researcher. He didn't need any computers to help him do it. He just was able to organize things really well so he could organize all the different companies that were building these dams and, and get them to work together. Um, he also really cared about his employees. And when he was building Grand Coulee Dam, uh, there were no medical facilities. This is out in the middle in, in, of eastern Washington. There were no towns around, no medical facilities. And so they had to hire some doctors. And one of the doctors came to him and said, you know, I think we can reduce absenteeism if we have a system of preventative health care where we don't wait for people to get sick. We make sure they don't get sick in the first place. We do regular checkups of people and things like that. And so Kaiser approved it. So they created the Kaiser Health Maintenance Organization. It's the first health maintenance organization in the world, and many people still think it's the best one. And from then on, all of his programs uh, used Kaiser Health, the Kaiser Health System, uh, whether he was building ships or building cars or whatever. And I, uh, Kaiser Health is uh, important in the Denver area. It's important in uh, most Pacific Coast states, Portland, San Francisco, and so on, uh, because uh, he's left that as a legacy for his work. Wow. And uh, how, long, how long did he live? How old, how old was he when he uh, passed on? Well, he was about 86, I think, when he died. Uh, but he did so much uh, in those years, and he never rested at all. Um, One interesting story was that after building Hoover and Grand Coulee and Bonneville Dam, the six companies bid on the Shasta Dam in Northern California, and they lost the bid. And so Kaiser said, well, if I can't build the dam, maybe I can build part of it. So he went to the people who won the bid and subcontracted to provide the sand and gravel. And he found a gravel mine about 10 miles away from the site of the dam. And the mine and the dam were both on the Southern Pacific Railroad. So he said, how much is it going to cost for me to move gravel from the mine to the dam? And they said, 27 cents a ton. Well, he decided that was too expensive, so he built a 10-mile-long conveyor belt that moved the gravel for just 18 cents a ton. It's probably the longest conveyor belt in history. And uh, ended up... Uh, statewide, there was a statewide cement cartel, and he broke that cartel and uh, started a Kaiser Permanente Cement and Kaiser Permanente Sand and Gravel, two other companies that uh, were added to his industrial system. And when we were doing the um, pre-call a little while back, uh, explain the word Permanente. Well, actually, uh, uh, 
the, he bought a quarry on Permanente Creek, which is near San Jose. And so permanent sounds good if you're providing, you know, want to make cement or concrete. Permanent sounds really like a really good name, but it was really named after the creek in San Jose. So uh, uh, later, the hospital system was also known as Kaiser Permanente. Uh, but again, it was all after the creek. How did you get, uh, we've got uh, probably about two minutes left. Uh, how, do you, how do you want to button this up here, Randall O'Toole, before we go to break? Well, uh, I think what's important is that Kaiser understood mass production and all these dams that were built and the roads that he built and so on. That was all before World War II. And uh, the next segment, I want to talk about what Kaiser did to help win World War II because he applied these systems of mass production that he had developed and learned in uh, uh, the dams and the roads and everything else to uh, uh, helping the United States win the war. Okay, and these dams, I was thinking that um, these dams were after World War II. Is, is that correct? Nope. They well, were before. They were all built before World War II. Hoover Dam was uh, built in the mid-30s, and Grand Coulee Dam and, and Bonneville Dam were built in the late 30s, and, and, and I believe they both were completed just before the war, just before the United States entered the war. Oh, I guess that makes sense, because that was after the Depression, so um, that's why it's important to get the you dates know, right on history. Part of the New Deal was building these dams, putting people to work, and also uh, providing electricity for the West, and... Uh, uh, attracting industry to the West. Okay, very interesting. I'm talking with Randall O'Toole. You can find him at the Antiplanner, and we're doing something a little different than what we normally do. We're normally talking about light rail or, or uh, land of urban land development or, or things like that. But we're talking about Henry J. Kaiser. So we're going to go to break. Before we do that, though, a sponsor of both my shows is Hooters Restaurants, and uh, they're great sponsors of the show. And I got to know them when I was on city council. It's a very interesting story about freedom and capitalism and free markets. And so you can get that at my website. So we're going to go to break. We will be right back with Randall O'Toole. The Metro home ownership real estate market is very tight right now. That's why Kim Munson recommends you have seasoned REMAX realtor Karen Levine on your side of the table. Karen Levine will help you navigate through the many details of your home buying experience so that you can successfully pursue your American dream. Because Karen Levine cares about property rights for each individual, she volunteers hundreds of hours to represent home ownership opportunities at the local, county, state, and national level. If you are considering buying or selling your home, call Karen Levine today at 303-877-7516. Again, that's 303-877-7516. All of Kim's sponsors are an inclusive partnership with Kim and are not affiliated with or in partnership with KLZ or Crawford Broadcasting. If you would like to support the work of the Kim Munson Show and grow your business, contact Kim at her website, KimMunson.com. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. 
And welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter there. And you can email me at Kim at Kim Munson.com as well. And thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice. We search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you shouldn't have to force people to do it. Thrilled to have on the line with me, Randall O'Toole. And you can find him at the Antiplanner. Uh, but we're talking about Henry J. Kaiser. Uh, so a little history about uh, somebody that contributed a lot to America. Uh, so uh, Randall O'Toole, uh, you said before we went to break, you wanted to talk about Henry J. Kaiser and World War II. So uh, where, where shall we begin? Well, at the beginning of the war, the British needed supplies, and the United States was sending a lot of supplies there. And, of course, uh, the German submarines were trying to sink the ships that uh, were sending the supplies, and so Britain needed more ships. So they contracted with Henry Kaiser and the Todd Shipbuilding Company to build some merchant ships for them. Well, Kaiser had never built a ship or even a shipyard in his life. Uh, and so when people said to him, how long do you think it's going to take you to build the ships, they, he gave them a number, and, and they thought he was delusional. Nobody had ever built ships that fast. Uh, normally it would take uh, two months to just launch a ship, and that was just basically the body, and then it would take another two months to outfit it with all the things needed for it to run. And he thought he could build it in less than a month. Um, <clears throat> so he got the contract, and he started building shipyards. He built seven shipyards in the Portland and San Francisco Bay areas, and each shipyard is capable of building 58 well, all of them together were capable of building 58 ships at a time. By the end of the war, he had built almost 1,500 ships, an average of about one a day. Uh, it was taking him, uh, to start with, less than a month to build ships when previously it was taking two months. And by the end of the war, he was building ships in as little as five days. Oh, my gosh. And um, <clears throat> they used mass production systems, but they also... Uh, use more modern systems. Uh, previously, ships had been built using rivets, and he started welding them together, and it was higher in quality than rivets, and it was faster than riveting. And uh, uh, he also had, you know, he had different shipyards, so he had them compete against each other to see who could build a ship in the fastest time. And Franklin Roosevelt was coming to Portland, so he got them to build a ship in eight days. And uh, so not to be outdone, the shipyard in San Francisco built a ship in less than five days. And so they, they simply became an organizational system that uh, 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 built things really fast. Now, the problem they had was a labor problem. All the men were joining the Army. And so they needed to find people to build those ships, and some of the people were women. But some of the people were blacks. Um, blacks weren't welcomed into the army. And so they went to uh, southern states and tried to recruit people to work for them in the Northwest and in uh, California. And some of the labor unions said, we don't want any blacks out here. And Kaiser just said, we don't care what their color is. We want people to work. And so they brought them to Portland. They brought them to San Francisco essentially doubled the black population of Oregon. And to provide housing they, in Portland, they built an entire city outside of Portland. It was called Vanport, because it was halfway between Vancouver, Washington, and Portland, Oregon. 
a city for about uh, uh, 50,000 people, and about a third of them were black. And it had schools, it had daycare centers, it had uh, health facilities, it had a college that ended up becoming Portland State University, and uh, basically was an entire city that was just for the workers. And uh, the daycare centers were considered to be a marvel of the time, and, and today, even today they'd be considered to be uh, a marvel of, of the time because they're much better daycare than are provided by most companies today. Um, uh, he became so well-known as an as a organiz, organizer that the... Air Force came to him, or the Army Air Force came to him and said, we've got a company that's supposed to build airplanes, and they're supposed to build 120 planes a month, and they're barely getting 14 out. Can you come out and reorganize it? So he went out there and got them up to 123 planes a month. He also thought, you know, we're just building these merchant ships, but the Navy could use some small aircraft carriers. They'd be nimble, they'd be they wouldn't be as big as a full-size carrier, but they'd still be big enough to have planes take off and land. They called them escort carriers, and he talked the government into buying 50 of them. He essentially took his 50, mer 50 merchant ship bodies and put a flat top on them for the aircraft carrier, and they played an important role in the, uh, in the war in the Pacific. He also thought that it would be a good idea to have a large cargo plane so that you could get materials to the front war front faster than taking them by ship and uh, he had never built a plane before he you know he'd organized this one factory but he never built a plane himself and so the government wasn't really interested but he went with howard he met howard hughes and talked him into joining them and so they gave him a contract to build a uh, essentially a model of a plane that would be a demonstration model unfortunately howard hughes is much more extravagant than kaiser kaiser uh, was focused on doing things as efficiently as possible, and Hughes ended up going way over budget, and so Kaiser dropped out. But they did end up building the plane. It was the largest cargo plane ever built. In some dimensions, it's the largest plane ever built in history. It's called the Spruce Goose because it was made out of plywood. It's now in a museum in Oregon, but uh, uh, that wouldn't have been built if it weren't for Kaiser coming up with the idea. Gosh, I wonder how, just getting into his mind, it seems like he's always thinking of, of we'd say, outside the box. I mean, I'm, what a, I mean, I, what an interesting guy. Uh, absolutely. And, for example, he, he had all these employees at these shipyards, so how do you get them to work? Well, he, did, he built a bus. He built a, what's called a bendy bus today, or an articulated bus that had a bus with a big trailer RTD drives these buses around, but he built some of the first ones in history and uh, took employees to work on, on these buses. Um, you know, he would see a problem and he'd figure out a solution for it. And uh, one problem was that um, <clears throat> they're building all these ships on the West Coast, but all the steel for the ships was coming from Pittsburgh, which is a long way away. So he essentially decided to build a steel plant in California so that he could build his own ships out of his own steel. Uh, he also built, also built a magnesium plant in California so that he could build use magnesium for uh, shipbuilding and other things like that. 
So um, he would see a problem, he'd solve the problem, and then he'd go on to the next problem. And so I wanted to mention the Bendy bus, because I think RTD does have those. And many times I see very few people on those Bendy buses. So there is a problem there. I wish that we would think outside the box and solve that particular problem, Randall O'Toole. Well, uh, Kaiser worked with the government a lot. A lot of the things he worked on were government projects. But he made sure that they were as efficient as possible. And what we see today is not just RTD, but transit agencies all over the country trying to build up their empires by being as inefficient as possible, by spending the most, you know, if there's two alternative ways of doing things, they'll pick the one that costs the most. Uh, If there's, uh, well, just as an example, we've got the pandemic, ridership plummeted, costs increased. They spent more money, far more money in 2020 and 2021 than they were spending in any previous year operating their transit systems, even though they were only carrying like a third as many riders. That's not the kind of stuff that Kaiser would do. Kaiser would say, oh, transit's not working anymore? Well, let's make it better. Let's reinvent it. Let's make it actually work. Let's not stick with the old molds uh, that are failing us. And yet that's exactly what transit agencies are doing today. Okay, we still have a little bit of time on Kaiser and World War II uh, in this segment. So what more should people know about Kaiser and World War II? Well, uh, the health system was an important, played an important role in this, too. Um, you know, Kaiser Health started out on Grand Coulee Dam, but then he opened up these large hospitals in Portland and in the San Francisco Bay Area. And after the war... They stayed around. They were there uh, forever. Um, you know, they're still there today. And that's really um, uh, probably his biggest legacy. Um, and, and we'll talk about later why most people haven't heard of him, why he's been forgotten. But uh, the Kaiser Health System is still remembered. It's still, of course, in, in Denver and Portland and San Francisco and in other places. So uh, I think what... Uh, this is just another example of Kaiser seeing a problem. You know, we've got young women who are working for the first time in major factories. They have children, so he develops daycare centers. They have health needs, so he develops a hospital system. Um, they have transportation needs, so he invents new buses for them. They have housing needs, so he builds a city for them. Um, it's like one of the most amazing stories of the 20th century. Well, and the one thing about it, though, and I guess I want to ask this when we come back, is do you feel that this is a bit like socialism, though, where government or the corporation is providing all that? It certainly is creative, but I want to ask you about that when we come back from break. I'm talking with Randall O'Toole, and you can find him at the Antiplanner, and just very knowledgeable on urban land development, on uh, transportation, just uh, an expert on so many things. So you can find him at the Antiplanner. Before we go to break, though, uh, I, a charity that I really support 
is the USMC Memorial Foundation, and they are raising money to remodel the Marine Memorial out at Sixth and Colfax. And uh, you can uh, help them by contributing, or it's uh, holiday season, Christmas season. You can uh, actually buy a brick uh, to honor the military service of your loved one or yourself. Uh, and you can do that by going to USMCMemorialFoundation.org. That's USMCMemorialFoundation.org. We'll be right back with Randall O'Toole. Three Points Financial is a fiduciary financial planning company focused on helping individuals and families. Mary Alpers and Steve Cruz at Three Points Financial specialize in investment strategies, tax planning and preparation, and retirement planning with no product sales or commissions. Tax laws have changed and will continue to change. Inflation is real. Three Points Financial helps you maneuver through these changes to achieve your financial success. For clarity and a solid, relevant financial and investment plan while working with a company that puts your interests at the forefront, schedule a no-obligation initial consultation at threepointsfinancial.com. That's threepointsfinancial.com. What you feed your skin matters. Botanical Rush is clean, professional skincare that only uses pure ingredients to restore and protect the skin. Your skin absorbs the products you put on it, so when you're using something every day, you better know what the ingredients are. Botanical Rush professional formulas are not just pure and potent, they are affordable. With regular use, these beautiful botanical formulas support collagen production, skin's precious moisture barrier, and reduce hyperpigmentation. Myra Mesco, the founder of Botanical Rush, holds every ingredient accountable to meet or exceed her high standards. Botanical Rush is non-toxic skincare, free of chemicals, estrogen mimickers, or artificial fragrances that hinder the skin's radiance. Discuss your skincare needs with Myra and set up a consultation at klzradio.com beauty or email info at botanicalrush.com and use the exclusive Kim Monson discount code KIM15 for your first order for a 15% discount at checkout. That's botanicalrush.com code KIM15. And welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. I'm Kim Munson. Be sure and check out our website. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter there, and you can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. Thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice. We search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you shouldn't have to force people to do it. On the line with me is Randall O'Toole. You can find him at the Antiplanner. Uh, and we're talking about Henry J. Kaiser. And Randall, all this is so creative. He sees a problem and he solves it. He's doing a lot of work with uh, government projects. To have, uh, it, it, what? It, how would you say this matches up to socialism, where um, government or the the business is providing all these things for people? That there's one thing I love the creativity, but I'm a little uncomfortable with that. What What's your comments on that? Well, I, that he's been accused of that in the past. A lot of people have said, "Well, he was just a, somebody who lived off of government contracts." And that tended to be true before the war. Most of what he did was build roads that were financed by the government, built dams that were financed by the government, built ships that were financed by a government, and so on. After the war, though, it was completely different. Uh, in the middle of the war, as early as 1942, he started worrying that uh, when the war was over, we'd just slip back into another depression. And so he started giving speeches to industrialists all over the country saying, we need to start providing people, finding ways to provide people with jobs, with housing, with cars, with 
all the things that uh, they need to live. And uh, he felt, a, as one biographer said, he felt a deep personal responsibility for help, helping maintain prosperity after the war. So uh, as the war ended, he immediately started entering new industries, and they were all private industries that sold uh, to private consumers rather than to the government. Uh, he started with housing. He uh, became the largest home builder in the country, building homes in Los Angeles, in San Jose, and in the Portland area, and uh, built thousands and thousands of homes. And he did it on an assembly line basis. In fact, we've, you've probably heard of uh, Levittown and the Levitt brothers. They had assembly line techniques. Right. Well, they borrowed them from him. But he had an advance that they didn't even use. He had a factory where he built kitchens and bathrooms in the factory and then brought them out with all the, uh, you know, cupboards and appliances attached and fitted and installed them into the homes. And that way he saved a lot of money and was able to offer these homes to people at really affordable prices. The homes had aluminum siding because he had an aluminum plant. Uh, they had dishwashers that were made in a Kaiser factory. Um, and so on and so forth. It was all based on uh, uh, coordinating everything. And he hoped that the garages would have a Kaiser automobile in the garage because the next business he got into is making cars. He uh, started the Kaiser Motor Company. And in the first year of production, as I said before, he sold more cars than any other company for startup automobile company has in history. Uh, the company made a lot of money for the first few years selling cars, uh, and uh, uh, he bought, uh, uh, in addition to his company, he bought another company called Willys Motors, which made cars before World War II, and then during the war, uh, they made Jeeps. So after the war, they were all tooled up to make Jeeps, so he said, well, let's modify these Jeeps and make them into passenger vehicles, and he essentially invented the first sports utility vehicle. Oh, my gosh. So um, he also, in order to provide steel for his ships and other things he was building, as I said before, he built a steel mill uh, on the West Coast, and he really considered the people who worked for him to be partners. So uh, after the war, the steel workers said they wanted to go on strike if they weren't given an 18-cent-an-hour increase in wages. The steel companies only wanted to pay 15 cents an hour more than they'd been paying. And Kaiser didn't see any point in arguing over three pennies. So he gladly signed the contract with his partners, and he was the only steel company in business for a while. Um, and uh, the, the Kaiser automobile system uh, made a lot of cars and made a lot of money. And then after by after 1949, the rest of Detroit, uh, you know, General Motors, Ford, Chrysler, caught up and started making new cars and new styles of cars, and had V8 motors and things like that that Kaiser didn't have, and they started eating into his sales. And in the early 50s, he was losing money on cars, and so a lot of people have said that his car business failed. But he did three extraordinary things to actually turn that failure around. First of all, uh, owned Willys Motors, which made SUVs, and he started calling them Jeeps. And, of course, today we see Jeeps on the road everywhere. Uh, those essentially are descendants of Kaiser's automobiles. Second, 
he decided um, he got a letter from somebody, and he was brooding over the letter, and one of his employees went to him and said, what are you upset about, boss? And he said, uh, this letter is from a railroad conductor, and he said he invested his life savings in Kaiser automobiles. And uh, he said he knew it wasn't doing very well, but he had faith in me that I would be able to make it a success. He didn't ask me to do anything. He just said he had faith. And he said, what am I going to do to turn this around? Well, he had a lot of different companies. All of his operations were different companies. Kaiser's Aluminum, Kaiser Cement, Kaiser Steel. They were all different companies. And he owned different percentages of companies. He might own 30% of the aluminum company. He owned 100% of the cement company. He owned only 17% of the automobile company. So a lot of other people were at risk here. So what he decided to do was he took his shares of the cement company and he took his shares of the aluminum company and he took his shares and everybody else's shares in the automobile company and combined them into one big company called Kaiser Industries. So everybody who had a share in Kaiser Automobiles traded that share in for a share in Kaiser Industries. Well, the Kaiser Automobile Company went out of business in 55, but nobody lost any money except him. It cost him $200 million to do that, but he did it so that nobody else would lose money. Finally, what he did is he took all the tools and dies that were being used to make Kaiser Automobiles, and he went down to South America, and he visited Brazil and Argentina and, and met with the heads of those, uh, those countries and said, would you like me to open an automobile plant here? He met with Juan Perón, who's, of course, Eva Perón's uh, husband, dictator of Argentina, and he said, he's told people, I'm not thrilled with meeting this guy. He's a dictator. It's a very corrupt system. And the guy said to him, uh, we'd love to have you open your automobile company here. They had a big parade for him. They had, uh, you know, all kinds of things. They offered him a free Mercedes Benz and so on and so forth. And then Perón said to him, and what will my share be of the revenues you make from selling automobiles? And he just threw up his hands and said, I don't want to do business like that. And he left the room and started driving to the airport. And Perón said, get him back. And they brought him back, and they said, it must have been a translation error. We're not asking for any shares. We'd just like you to build the company. So he moved everything to Argentina, and for the next 10 years, they made cars. It was the largest automobile manufacturer in South America. And uh, so the failure in the United States turned out to be a success in South America. Uh, and that really is kind of the story, you know, of his life. Everything, um, he just figured out a way to make it work. Well, and there's a character thing that I, I see here with the uh, railway conductor who lost his his investment and uh, that it troubled Kaiser and that he actually took that move that he was the only one that lost money on all that. That's rather remarkable, Randall. It is an incredible story. And, you know, he he just felt like everybody was his partner. You know, the other shareholders were his partners. His employees were in part, was in partners, and so on and so forth. And uh, he uh, uh, he extended that to everything. Uh, when he started Kaiser Aluminum, uh, you know, aluminum is made out of a mineral called bauxite. And he initially bought bauxite from Alcoa, which for a long time was a monopoly aluminum company in the United States. It was uh, just a gigantic company. But he wanted to develop his own bauxite mine, so he bought some 
land in Jamaica, which had bauxite on it. Uh, he bought it from thousands of farmers and uh, started mining the bauxite. It was a strip mine, but he didn't want to leave a devastated landscape behind him. So he made sure, first of all, that all the farmers that he bought the land from uh, were relocated to better farmland than they had before and that had more water, which most of them previously lacked. He made sure they had community centers and training in modern farming methods. After strip mining the bauxite, he planted a thousand trees uh, for every tree that had been cut on the land and made sure it was higher productivity than it had been before. Uh, and so, uh, you know, he wanted to leave something behind that was better off than when he got there, and he succeeded in doing that. Well, and that really is, I think, each of us as as we look at our lives uh, to do things to leave to the next generation something better than what was given to us. And so each generation needs to wrestle with that particular question, Randall O'Toole. Yes, and, you know, people think, you know, evil capitalism because capitalists get rich, but entrepreneurs like Henry Ford and James J. Hill and Henry Kaiser and Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, you know, they're making things that benefit everybody. I mean, where would we be today without smartphones? You know, practically every adult in the world today has a smartphone because of Steve Jobs. And uh, that, uh, as an Economist magazine once said, uh, Steve Jobs put a supercomputer in everybody's pocket. It's, it's, it's remarkable. And that's the thing. Uh, there's a difference between cronyism and capitalism. And capitalism is uh, free exchange, where uh, somebody may create something and people say, hey, that makes my life better. I'm willing to trade my hard-earned dollars for that particular product or service because it makes my life better. And if the person that's created that has a lot of people that think that, then the person that creates that will grow fabulously wealthy. And I love that, Randall O'Toole. Well, Kaiser was often called a maverick because the, he changed things so much. And uh, he owned uh, Kaiser Willys Motors, and he owned Kaiser Aluminum. And somebody came to him and said, hey, we've got a TV show uh, you, we think you might want to sponsor. And it was called Maverick. Start James Garner, and uh, so if 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 you are old enough to remember watching the shows, they'd always say sponsored by Kaiser Aluminum and Willie's Motors, and I, I never put the two together uh, when I was watching the show that Kaiser owned Willie's Motors and Kaiser Aluminum, uh, but he saw James Garner as being his alter ego. And he was happy to sponsor it for as long as the show was on the air. Oh, that is absolutely fascinating. So I'm talking with Randall O'Toole regarding Henry J. Kaiser, and we're going to go to break. We have one more segment left. Uh, Absolutely fascinating, and I love learning about history. So we're going to go to break. We'll be right back. Inflation is rocking our boats, especially for individuals on fixed incomes. If you are 62 years or older, mortgage specialist with Polygon Financial Group, Lauren Levy, can help you navigate this inflation squeeze with a reverse mortgage. Additionally, if you are considering buying a new home, refinancing your existing home, or consolidating high interest debt, it's not too late to lock in an interest rate before interest rates increase again. 
Don't wait. Kim Munson recommends you call Lauren Levy today at 303-880-8881 for a no-cost consultation. That's Lauren Levy at 303-880-8881. Every family needs a healthcare team that has your child's best interest as the priority, and Roots Medical is proud to offer exactly that. At Roots Medical, we strive to empower and educate both parent and child about the importance of gut health, how to implement healthy changes in the home, and of course, all of the benefits that come with a fully optimized immune system. Same day and sickness appointments are available and easy to schedule. For more information, visit rootsmedical.net. That's R-O-O-T-S medical.net. Roots Medical, getting to the root of your healthcare concerns. The ability to protect and defend yourself is your right. Having the knowledge and skills to protect yourself the correct and safe way is essential. At Franktown Firearms, they will equip you with both the tools and the skills. The team at Franktown wants you to learn how to build your confidence and improve your skills with the help of their trained experts. They will take the time to make sure you choose the right gun for you and teach you the necessary skills to carry it safely and securely. This holiday season, consider giving your loved one a firearm training course at Franktown Firearms. They offer one-on-one training or group classes, depending on your comfort level and skill. You will find they are fully stocked with guns and ammunition at or below MSRP. You can be assured that you are providing a gift that will truly keep on giving and let your loved ones exercise their freedoms and rights safely and confidently. Visit klzradio.com slash franktown today to give the gift of freedom. That's klzradio.com slash franktown. Franktown Firearms, where friends are made. And welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter there, and you can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. And thank you to all of you who, uh, who support us. We're an independent voice, and we search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you shouldn't have to force people to do it. And uh, on the line with me is Randall O'Toole, and we have pre-recorded this show for you uh, to have these special shows during Thanksgiving. We're talking about Henry J. Kaiser. Uh, So, uh, Randall O'Toole, this is our final segment. What should people know about Henry J. Kaiser? Well, after World War II, uh, Kaiser's wife became seriously ill, and and he hired a uh, nurse to take care of her. And she died in 1951, and Kaiser uh, scandalized the world by marrying his wife's nurse, who was half his age, less than a month after his wife died. Well, this had some good uh, results and some bad results. Uh, The best result was that he started seeing the world through the eyes of a young person again. And they went to Hawaii on a vacation, and uh, instead of seeing Hawaii as a place where he could build ships or, or build cement or something like that, he saw Hawaii as a place where he could uh, and, and improve tourism. And he liked it as a tourist, uh, but Hawaii wasn't the big tourist destination in those days because it was hard to get to. So uh, he looked around and said, uh, we've got a lot of people unemployed here. How are we going to put them to work? And he decided to promote tourism. So he bought 22 acres of land on Waikiki Beach, and built a large hotel. If, if you've ever been to 
Honolulu. You've probably seen, if you haven't been to, the Hilton Hawaiian Hotel or Hawaiian Village Hotel. Well, he built that and um, <clears throat> decided, you know, there's a housing shortage in Hawaii, too. So he got some land and uh, started building a huge housing development called Hawaii Kai. And uh, Kai means ocean in Hawaiian, but, of course, it's also the first three letters of his name, Kaiser. And uh, Hawaii Kai was a long way away from downtown Honolulu, and there was only a twisty, narrow, windy road between the two. And so the state of Hawaii, Hawaii uh, Highway Department, said, uh, we want to do a study. We're going to spend $20 million doing a study to see whether we should widen this road into a four-lane highway. And Kaiser went to the governor of Hawaii and said, for $20 million, I'll build that road for you. And the governor said, well, we'll have to bid it out. So they bid it out, and there were two bids. Somebody bid $20 million, and he bid $19.8 million. <laughs> he built the road. It's called the Kalaniani Ole Highway, still there. Uh, and uh, he built it in less time than they were expecting to take on their feasibility study. Unbelievable. So he got it done. And, uh, again, that was a government contract, but he just made it possible. And, of course, it also enhanced the value of uh, the houses he was building. Now, um, there are all these remarkable stories about what he was doing in Hawaii. Um, for example, and I've heard this story told two different ways. One was regarding the highway, and one was regarding the Hawaiian village. The Hawaiian village included a, a, a tall skyscraper hotel, as well as a lot of little co cottages. And the city rules were that the cottages had to be 20 feet apart. And one day a building inspector came to him and said, two of the cottages are only 19 and a half feet apart. But uh, he said, if you give me to a $200 bribe, uh, I'll overlook it. Well, Kaiser hated bribery, he hated corruption. So he told us, this was a Friday, and they came to Kaiser and said, what are we going to do about this? He said, all right. You've got all weekend. Take six inches off one of the cottages. Just move the wall six inches in, and then next Monday tell them to remeasure it. <laughs> and he did. He measured it over and over again. He couldn't figure out how it was 19 and a half feet one day and 20 feet the next day. Finally, they let him know what happened, and the lesson was that everybody learned they weren't going to pay any bribes. Now, the other thing was uh, a union organizer came to him and said he wanted to uh, uh, organize the people who were building a hotel. And Kaiser said, I don't have any problem with that. If they want to be a part of the union, that's fine with me. So uh, uh, he came, the organizer came back a few weeks later and said, okay, I've got a majority of your employees who have agreed to join the union. Uh, let's negotiate a contract. And Kaiser said, I don't have time to negotiate. Just bring me a contract that you think is fair to both sides, and I'll sign it. So the guy came with a contract a week later, and Kaiser turned to the last page to sign, and the guy said, aren't you even going to organize it? He said, no. I asked you to write a fair contract, one that we could look at each other in the eye and not be ashamed of. And if you say you've done it, I'll sign it. And the organizer said, well, I just had my boys draw it up. I better check it before you sign it. So he came back a few days later. Kaiser signed the contract. The organizer left. Kaiser handed the contract to his lawyer and said, better see what I got us into. 
turned out the contract was fair to all concerned except for one part. Most union contracts say in the event of a dispute, there'll be an arbitration committee to settle the, dis- the dispute. And the committee usually consists of one person who's decided by each party. In other words, the company and the union designates one person each, and then they designate a third person, and the three of them together are the arbitration committee. This contract instead read, in case of any dispute, the sole arbiter shall be Henry Kaiser, and his decision shall be final. Oh, my gosh. Now, that was in the 50s. In 1965, the AFL-CIO gave its annual humanitarian award to Henry J. Kaiser. It was the first time they'd ever given the award to an industrialist, to somebody who's normally their opponent. But it was because they recognized that Kaiser considers employees as partners and worked with them on, and, you know, didn't fight the unions, uh, didn't object to pay increases, uh, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> Another story was that while he was building the hotel, of course, a lot of the places that he was building, there were already palm trees there, and he gave out an order that no trees shall die because of the hotel. So if they were building a place there were trees, they dug up the trees and transplanted them to another place. He also found, as, a, as an aside, that if the trees were very close to the construction site, the workers hated it, so they got done with it as quick as they could so they didn't have to deal with the trees being there. So he would deliberately plant the trees right next to construction sites in order to get the workers to finish the work faster. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We've got about five minutes left, uh, four or five minutes left. Randall, how, you know, what's the final things you want people to know about Henry J. Kaiser? Well, let me tell one more story and then uh, talk about his legacy. Um, uh, he heard about Buckminster Fuller, who had designed something called a geodesic dome, and nobody had ever built one. So he ordered his aluminum factory in uh, uh, California to make some aluminum pieces that would create a geodesic dome. And he shipped them to... Hawaii, and they were planning to have a, a big concert uh, 24 hours after these aluminum pieces arrived. So in just 20 hours, they built uh, a 49-foot-high, 149-foot diameter dome. It was the first geodesic dome ever built, and it uh, uh, served the Hawaiian Ho- Village Hotel for four decades as a, an event site. So that's just another way in which he was innovative. Wow. Now, uh, the bad part about marrying uh, his young wife was that he was so entranced with her that when he died, um, he had a son who was just as entrepreneurial, just as good a manager as he was. But when he died, when Henry died, he left half his money to his wife and half his uh, in money. And I say money, he meant, I mean, his investments in all these companies to a foundation. And the foundation was good because the foundation ended up being the backup for the uh, Henry the Kaiser Health Organization all over the country. Uh, but the foundation wasn't particularly interested in Kaiser, and so they sold their interest in Kaiser and put them into put the money into, into investments that they uh, thought was a, you know, a broader range of investments. And his wife did the same thing. She just sold off 
Kaiser Aluminum, Kaiser Steel, uh, you know, all these different companies piecemeal, and they all lost their identity. And Edgar Kaiser tried to keep them going, but he didn't have any ownership in them, and so he was unable to, Edgar was his son, unable to keep them going. So today, the only Kaisers we really see anymore are the Kaiser Health Maintenance Organization. And while that's a fitting legacy, it's, I think that's the reason why Fortune magazine forgot about Kaiser when they talked about the entrepreneur of the 20th century, uh, uh, is because his legacy in, in all these different companies, Kaiser Aluminum, Kaiser Cement, Kaiser Automobiles, you know, Jeeps and so on, that's all been lost, forgotten. And just very quickly, Edgar, did he go on to have a successful businesses or what happened to him? Well, he did have a successful career, but, um, you know, he managed Kaiser Aluminum for a while. He also managed a company called Kaiser Engineering, which still exists, although he didn't have any investment in it because he didn't have much. He had about $50 million that his, his father had shared with him before Henry died, but it wasn't enough to really own a company or control any of these companies. And so... Kaiser Engineering still exists, but no Kaisers are involved in it anymore. Uh, and all the other companies are pretty much vanished. Okay. Well, Randall O'Toole, thank you so much. We're out of time, but thank you so much. I've learned so much uh, about Henry J. Kaiser as well as our history. So thank you, Randall O'Toole, the Antiplanner. Thank you. And our quote for the end of the show is from Henry J. Kaiser. He said this, Problems are only opportunities in work clothes. So my friends today, be grateful, read great books, think good thoughts, listen to beautiful music, communicate and listen well, live honestly and authentically, strive for high ideals, and like Superman, stand for truth, justice, and the American way. My friends, you are not alone. God bless you, and God bless America.